All right, good morning. Good morning. Craziest thing happened to me this morning. True story. So every Sunday morning, I leave the house early, and there is this sort of industrial park parking lot. <clears throat> and so I go there, I park, I go through my sermon notes, I pray. It's kind of like me time, just getting away. And uh, so I'm there, and when I drive in, there's no one around me. And when I leave, about 50 to 100 feet behind me is a car that apparently was in a massive car accident, and the entire front end was blown off, and there's pieces everywhere, right? And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, did this happen while I was sitting in my car, right? So, ladies, can I just ask you a question? Do your husbands do, like, one thing good at a time, right? <clears throat> like, nothing more, nothing less. It's like one thing, don't, you know? So, here's, so I see the car, I, I pull out, and there's a guy standing next to there. I'm thinking, this must have just happened. There's a big actual rock on the side of the road, so I thought, he probably hit the rock. So I go over and I say to this guy, are you okay? What happened? And he said, oh yeah, I'm fine. Um, the other car, we already got their information. The police was here. We're all fine. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 50 feet to 100 feet behind me, okay? There was a massive car accident where the front, of an, the front end of an entire car was taken off. Meanwhile, I want you to know my car is off. There's no like sound or music going. It's me in an iPad staring, looking at my notes. And the police had come taking care of this and the car had already gone off and he's just waiting for a tow truck. How does that happen? <laughs> Ladies, it is biological. We are wired to do one thing good at a time, nothing more, nothing less. Can I get an amen from the, from the dudes? <laughs> True story. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be uh, in that book, chapter one. Please open up your Bibles with me there. And I want to share with you um, one of the greatest promotions I ever received in my life, it was a promotion where um, truly everything changed. And I went from being fiance to husband. Like all in a moment, like some pastor gets up and he's like, I now pronounce you husband and wife, bam, it's done, right? And all of a sudden, I am now allowed to sleep in the same bed as this woman. I'm allowed to kiss her. I'm allowed to share a bank account with her and do all these things and build a home with her. Where, where like one day before, it was like, nope, can't do that. Nope, can't do that. Nope, can't do it just In a moment, everything is good. And one of my favorite stories from this time is, is uh, we were married. I wasn't very long. And I've shared this with some, probably shared it here. Um, and so uh, I wake up and you know that it's like groggy feeling. There's drool everywhere. Like just... And uh, this, will make, this is about something relevant, trust me. So there's drool everywhere. And I'm like... Ugh. And I wake up and I look down and my face is on top of my wife's forehead. Like, and I'm like, Brie, don't move. Don't move. There's drool all over your forehead. And if this was, if this was not 2003, I would have absolutely taken my, a, a picture, put it on Facebook and let the whole world see it. You know, like this was before smartphone cameras really worked. And uh, I remember just thinking to myself, man, like this is the life. And, and uh, but when I got married, yeah, Brianna was thinking the exact same thing. She's like, all right, surprise number 342,000. Great, like this is gonna be amazing. Um, but I remember getting this promotion and all of a sudden I just like, my entire life changed. I am no longer fiance, I am husband. And with this comes a whole new set of roles and responsibilities and privileges and challenges and authority and life and, and opportunities and everything just changes for the better. Right, husbands? 
That was weak sauce. Hey, there's a Weekend to Remember conference that is coming up in just like a couple like months or so. I like, encourage you to sign up. Shameless plug. Here we go. Great. Uh, I think about President Barack Obama, right? One day he's a, he's a senator in Illinois, okay? And don't worry, I'm not going to get all political. Relax, okay? He's a senator in Illinois. And then in a moment, a Supreme Court judge looks at him and declares, you are now the most important and influential and powerful man in the entire world world. What? Like in a moment, you want to talk about promotion and a change of position where literally everything that you know changes. You can no longer just go to the store. You can no longer just go to church. You can no longer just be anywhere because you will have an entourage of guards with you 24-7. That's crazy. And in a moment, everything that he knows is real changes just like that. I think one of the most emotional circumstances, and this is particularly relevant for, for my home, because Annie, the new version of Annie, is always, the soundtrack is always playing, okay? Even my son says, Dad, turn on Hard Knock Life, right? I'm like, yeah, this is, <laughs> you've got the Hard Knock Life, kid. Like, this is, <laughs> this is difficult, right? In your minivan, driving around with your Starbucks, you know, like, life's hard. And uh, so, anyway, so... Hard Knock Life, and this, so anyways, it's like Little Orphan Annie, right? And so all the time, now my kids, they're singing this, thinking like, oh, this is so cool. The girl was an orphan, she gets adopted, and life changes. Sorry to give away the movie, but that's what happens. And, and uh, but, I, so I'm hearing these songs, and the songs are written from the perspective of a little girl who is so desperate to be loved. There are moments when my kids are blurting out these words, and like, I almost want to cry thinking about like my little girls potentially growing up as orphans and ever saying these kind of words, you know, just the weight of them. And, and I was thinking about this, and it's like, and you get this little orphan girl, and um, your heart should just break, because on the one hand, I mean, we almost laugh and we sing because they make it like a pop culture thing, but this is like a real, this just illustrates and, and is a metaphor for very real little girls all over the place. And so I imagine, like, all the time, like, when I'm hearing this in my children, what would it be like for my kids to have no mom, no dad, desperate to have that filled, and she goes from no family to a beloved daughter in a legal moment. She goes from unloved, now hear me, I don't mean unlovable, I just mean she does not have the love of a mom and a dad directly pointed to her to secure her and give her that hope and destiny. She goes from unloved to loyal, loyally and sacrificially loved forever. She goes from on her own to sacrificially protected. Her past is no longer her shame. Her present is filled with possibility. Her future is secure. And when I think about me and Jesus, honestly, this picture of the orphan comes up more times than anything else. And when I came to faith in Jesus, and when you came to faith in Jesus, your behavior changed, and as a result of that, or your position changed, and as a result of that, your behavior has to change. And this is so much what the book of Ephesians is about. Imagine if Bri and I get, we get married. Imagine. It's possible. And I go and I decide, you know, we're going to sleep in different homes. We're going to have different apartments. We're going to sleep in different beds. We're not going to hold hands. We're not going to be affectionate. That would be insane because once your position changes, your behavior has to follow. I imagine um, the little orphan girl, right, she um, goes outside and she sleeps on the steps of her new mom and dad's front porch. Well, why don't you just come inside because sometimes you just revert to all you know. Imagine the dad comes in and the little girl is just sleeping on the hard floor. Well, honey, there's a there's a, a beautiful, very expensive soft bed right here. Why don't you just sleep in that? 
And it's interesting because what happens when we have these massive position changes, it takes a long time for us, for our behavior sometimes, to catch up to the reality and the beauty and the weight of our position. And so I can look at everyone in this room and say, if you've trusted in Christ, you have experienced one of the, if not the most significant position change on planet Earth, bar none. It's amazing. And the expectation is that as you understand this position change, what's going what's to change? how you live, how you live. So the book of Ephesians, just very simply, it's one of the easiest ways to understand this book. Six chapters divided in half. The first three chapters are all about who God says you are, what God has given to you, and what he's done for you. It's functionally about your position and what God has done for you, and he brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, how all of that works, and it's who you are. And the second half of the book of Ephesians is about, all right, now, in light of the fact that your position is secure, how are you supposed to act in light of that? How are you supposed to act? What are you supposed to do? So some of you, if you're like a theologian, you love the first three chapters of Ephesians. And if you're like a practical, like just tell me what to do, Pastor Michael, you're gonna love the second half of the book. My goal, no pressure, Michael, is to get all of you to love the whole book, right? So that's gonna be one of my challenges. But if you know who you are, you will know what to do. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. And one of, I think, my goals, because it's Paul's goal with the, goal with the Ephesian church, is to tell you, who you truly are. So you have a new position. And there's a phrase that the Bible uses to describe this new position. It is a phrase that the Bible uses 216 times, particularly the New Testament. Do you know how many times you're called a Christian in the New Testament? Three. This is, Christian is not the way the New Testament primarily or secondarily even refers to you you have actually a very different title that is given to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, this is interesting, but it's a long set of verses. It's one sentence. That's all it is. It is one very, very long sentence. And do you know how many times this phrase is used in that one sentence? Ten times. So whatever this phrase is, I'll tell you in a minute. I know you're waiting with bated breath. Right? I know, you're just pumped. You're like, tell me what it is. I'll tell you tomorrow. I'm kidding. Uh, whatever this is, if somebody, especially God inspiring the Apostle Paul in this letter, is going to bring up a phrase 10 times in one sentence, do you think that it might be important for you to know what this phrase is? The answer is yes. Here's the phrase. It's really unassuming. It's totally forgettable, but it's amazing when you understand it. In Christ. In Christ. This is just a snapshot. We're not going to read all this, but I want you to notice the purple magenta. This is all of the times in these short few verses where this one phrase and concept, he either says in Christ, in him, or in the beloved. This is all the times in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14 that this comes up. Uh, and I wanted to visually just show this to you so you could see, like this isn't just a random word. Where we're gonna pull out a prepositional phrase and talk about it. This is actually the most common way that you are self-identified in scripture is that you are in Christ. So I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and here's what it says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, say with me, in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, say with me, in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. So I need to break this down because if you're gonna read the New Testament, particularly Ephesians 1, particularly anything Paul writes, you need to understand what this phrase does and does not mean. It's a weird phrase. I'll tell you why it's weird. Because when we talk about being in something, it's almost like, what did Jesus eat me and now I'm in his stomach? Or it's a sexual phrase. Let me tell you that this is not a sexual phrase, nor does it imply that we have been consumed physically by Jesus Christ. This is not that. In fact, this phrase, this concept of being in a person is rarely, if ever, used outside of the New Testament. You will find being in organizations. I'm in the community. I'm in the family. I'm in the organization. But you will rarely, if ever, find being in a person in the English language, unless you're referring to this phrase, or in the Greek language. It's like a new concept. And so when Jesus and Paul were trying to articulate, okay, all right, something massively changed when you trusted in Christ. There's been a positional shift that is far bigger than the, than the human language can understand. It's almost like the human language strained and struggled to find the words. So Jesus, it started with him, and then Paul coined, took this term even deeper. They said, you know what? It's like we are in Christ. And now the hard thing is, if you've read the Bible for any period of time, you naturally gloss over this phrase because you assume you know what it means. Many of you, if you read the Bible, you might stop here and be like, what does it mean to be inside of a person? And it's really confusing. And what I wanna do with you this morning is I want you to just clearly and beautifully understand what it means that you are in Christ. And then when you actually open up your Bible and you read the New Testament and you see these phrases, you can actually just stop and you can savor this and you can enjoy this because the position that you've been given in Christ is the greatest promotion that you have ever received or ever will receive, period. And so to be in, to be in someone, here's what Jesus and the Apostle Paul are trying to communicate. It is to take their identity, position, and resources as your own. To take their identity, their position, and their resources as your own. I go back to the story of, of the orphan and uh, imagine um, a little girl saying to her dad, are you going to give me back if I'm not good? And the dad, who has adopted her, I mean, this is legal, he looks at her and says, sweetheart, you're in the family. Like, you're in. Like, this is non-negotiable. You're ours. And the orphan says, but I, I don't feel in. And then the dad looks at her and says, it doesn't matter what you feel. Legally, relationally, you're in. Everything that's mine is yours. You have my last name. You have my identity. You have our position in life, our class, everything that comes with my family. Like, you have it. It's, it's yours. Everything that is at my disposal is yours. It doesn't matter if you're adopted or not. You're a son. You're a daughter, period. There is no distinction. Legally, there might have been a time when you weren't, and now, there are time, there, and now you are. But like objectively, relationally, like everything, you're in me. You, you take everything that is mine, and it's, and it's yours. And so the English language and the Greek language, honestly, they don't have any clear, helpful, good phrases. And it's like Jesus and Paul coined this term, and they say, we're just going to make up a new term, everybody. And here it is. You're in Christ. And the rest of the Bible is spent, honestly, referencing what this means over and over and over and over and over and over again. In Christ, we have his identity, we have his position, and we have his resources. Now, Christos is the next word. 
And uh, this is not Christos, although this was where um, the term was very often used. It was used to speak of the anointed king, the emperors of Rome would take this as their own. And I want you to get the phrase here because not only is it grammatically like a not normal thing that Greeks or Americans and English would say, um, but I'll, I want you to understand this because when any Roman authority heard this phrase applied to Christians, that all of the goodness of life, all of the blessings of this world are found in Christ Jesus, this was actually a subversive and rebellious comment to make. Because for the Romans, no, the Roman emperors understood themselves as God, as the anointed king. They were the Christos, if you will. And you're in Christos. If you're gonna be anywhere, you're in the Roman um, emperor. And he distributes and blesses because he's like a god, right? And the Christians come along and they, and they just take this phrase back and they're like, you don't get this phrase. Anointed king is reserved for Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the king of emperors. It's reserved for him. And so the Christians took this honestly weird phrase and they took it away from the emperor and they applied it to Jesus Christ. And so this is a very subversive word. And I want you to get for the first century context, this was deeply, deeply, deeply emotional. It's deeply emotional. It's deeply personal. And so for us, this has become much more, I would just say, theological, 2,000 years removed in Western America, right? But this phrase, when they were said to be in Christ, was saying that Christ is over the emperor and he is your identity, he is your protection, he is your provision, all of his resources are, are yours. Nero might own more wealth now than you could possibly imagine, but Jesus owns every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and he will distribute to you freely what's his is yours always. Now, go into your notes, number one in your notes. I wanna share with you three things at the very least that you being in Christ means. And here's the first one. I, if I'm in Christ, I, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I am not in Adam, but I am in Christ. So I need to give you a Bible tip um, and this is very important, so I want you to listen carefully. You are a 21st century Western American, most of you, which means you're gonna encounter concepts in the Old Testament or the New Testament that are 2,000 years removed, and here's what you're gonna be tempted to think. I don't get that. That must not be true. That's irrelevant, okay? Because as a part of you growing up as a Western American, here's one of the, we'll just say lies that you are gonna be tempted to believe culturally. American thinking, Western thinking is the pinnacle of all thought. All of history has culminated to this point and we and how we think are the right way to think. We're the right people. We're the best, we're the smartest. This is the most logical way that anybody should ever think. Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that that's just not true, okay? And when Jesus comes back, he's going to laugh at much of the values of Western Christians and just Westerners in general because they're not his values. But here's the Bible tip. When you open up the Bible, <clears throat> you see that they value something or there's a cultural thing there that you don't get. You need to understand it because if God is going to value it and communicate it, then it's true, even if it contradicts what Americans think is right and true. So you're gonna read this phrase, like, in Adam. Like, what does this even mean? I'm gonna explain it. And when I explain it, there's gonna be something inside of you that says, I don't like that, that's not fair. And it doesn't matter if Western you doesn't like it, and it doesn't matter if you don't think it's fair. It is. And it's our job to submit all of our cultural understandings of things to the word of God and let it reshape how we think about reality. I am not in Adam, I am in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, 
by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as, say with me, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So I want you to understand this. All of humanity, everybody in this room, you get to be in one of two categories. You're either in Adam, and with that, you have his identity, his position, and his resources, or you're in Christ, and with that, you have his identity, and his position, and his resources. There is no in-between, and if you're in Christ, you're not in Adam, and if you're in Adam, you're not in Christ. Once you leave in Adam and you come to Christ, you can never go back to being in Adam, and you don't want to be in Adam. So let me break this down for you. What is Adam's identity? Fallen sinner. What is Adam's position? Condemned by God. And what, is Adam's, what are Adam's resources? Spiritually destitute. Anybody want to be on Adam's team, by the way? Right? Now, what you might be thinking is, well, that's not fair. I didn't choose to be an Adam. I was just born. And Western you is going to be like, I don't like that. Like, I want to be held accountable for what I did. Well, on one hand, I want to say boo-hoo, because that's not the way it works. On the other hand, I want to say I get it, because I totally understand that. But here's just the reality, the rhythm of life, right? You didn't control who your parents were, but you look like them, you sound like them, you have their mannerisms, you have their blood running through you, okay? And in the same way that we inherit all the physical traits and all the emotions and spiritual and personality and all of this stuff is inherited, in the same way, sin is also inherited from Adam. It is a fact, it is a rule. Even if you don't like it, it doesn't change the fact that it is. So that every human being on this planet is born in Adam, with his sin nature. They're born as a fallen sinner, condemned by God, spiritually destitute, which is why Jesus coming is so awesome. Because God loves humanity so much that he would not let us stay in Adam. He would come and he would make sure that every human being on the planet had the opportunity to be in Christ. And let me tell you about Jesus and being in Christ, his identity Beloved son, Jesus' position, exalted, and Jesus' resources, infinite. Ball's in your court. Would you rather be a fallen sinner condemned by God and spiritually destitute, or a beloved son or daughter, exalted with access to infinite resources? It's like a no-duh, Right? And this is the breakdown of how God sees all of humanity. And let's read Ephesians 1.3. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, where? In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Honestly, over the next few weeks, we're gonna uncover all of these spiritual blessings. You have been chosen, you have been predestined, you have been adopted, there is an inheritance, God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. I mean, the blessings are catastrophic, they change everything about who we are. Um, But here's what I want you to see, that any of these blessings, all of these infinite resources, they're only found where? In Christ, and that's it. And so this is the framework. You either are living in the sin nature of Adam, guilty, or you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you are now, with finality, a beloved son or daughter. You are no longer condemned, but accepted, and you have these infinite resources of God. Number two, I am not in a religion, 
but I am in a person. <clears throat> now, in evangelicals world, right, we hear this a lot, like I'm not in a religion, I'm a follower of Jesus, etc. and that's great, it's true, and I want to talk about it. Some of you are going to be tempted to zone out, and I'm to tell you why not to. Because the majority of people that I run into that don't have a history of being in the church have never heard this concept at all. And you are going to be raising children, likely many of you, or you are, or you have grandchildren or nieces or nephews, or you'll just obey Jesus and go make disciples, okay? Here's what I want you to understand. Ingrained into the very fabric and rhythm of Western pop culture is this idea that Christianity is a bunch of rules and regulations. That is the understanding. And your children and your nieces and your nephews and your grandchildren are going to have this indoctrinated so deeply into their soul that it will take you the rest of your life to unravel the disaster that is this lie, that Christianity is a religion. And I want to define religion for you so we can just be on the same terms. It's a set of rules and regulations designed to help you get to God. It's a set of rules and regulations designed to help you get to God. I want you to hear me. Village Church is not a set of rules and regulations designed to help you get to God. Christianity is not a set of rules designed to help you get to God. Everything is about the person of Jesus Christ. It is about a person. I am not coming to a religion or to a book. I'm coming to a person. Do you understand that? And so this is so important. We're going to unravel. We're going to see how this works and how insidious this idea really is and how interwoven it even is into some of the most mature believers in Jesus Christ in this room. But you are not in a religion this is not about rules, and as soon as it is, you will watch your relationship with God struggle massively. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we'll read this for you. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Okay, pop quiz. Did you do anything to get saved? Okay, good, we're on the same page. It's the gift of God. Okay, do you do anything to deserve gifts? No, okay. Not a result of works. Okay, did you do anything, any good works? Were you like, is there anything you did where God's like, that person's good, I'm gonna save them? The answer is no. So let's just be clear, like we're all on the same page. There's nothing at all that you did in any way, shape, or form to get saved or to earn salvation or to make God be like, that person's it. The answer is no. Okay, that was a little hesitant, but we'll go. Okay, good. So that no one may boast. So if you're saved, do you get to say, look how awesome I am, I'm better than Jimmy Bob or Susie Q, right? The answer is no. Good, we're on the same page. For we are his workmanship. So God is a master craftsman and he forms us and shapes us. Every single person, uniquely, individually. We are his craftsmen. We're his, his, the work of his hands. Created, say with me, in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. So are you saved by good works or for good works? For good works. Ah, so good. I love prepositions. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here's the point that Paul's trying to make over and over and over and over and over again. It is not by being good that you get saved. It is very, or in Christ, it is by this, faith. It's by faith. And here's the deal. When you do good works, this isn't religion. This is called obedience. It's called, uh, I love God, therefore I'm going to love other people. But it's not earning anything. As soon as you think that you're better than somebody else and that makes God like you, you have missed the point. You've totally missed the point. True story. This week, um, there was this precious young teenage girl and we had this conversation 
And she, she says to me, okay, Michael, um, Pastor Mike, uh, so is there anything like, okay, she was stumbling over her words. Um, I think I made her nervous. Uh, okay, Pastor Mike, okay. What do I have to do to make God like not mad at me? So like when I do bad things, like how do I get God to not be mad at me? And then she proceeds to tell me that every night she, she goes to bed, sweet girl, every night she goes to bed and she has this cross over her bed. And every night she says something like this. God, um, I just really hope that um, you will forgive me of my sins. I look at her and I just said, can we just can we shift one, <laughs> like one little thing you say? Can I just give you like a new thing to say? How about this? Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me for all of my sins. It's like the light bulb just went off. She's like, huh, interesting. Like just little, you know. And for her, she had to get her sins forgiven over and over and over again, and she had to do good, and her good had to outweigh her bad. Now, I looked at her, and I said, do you believe in Jesus? She said, yeah. Do you believe he died on the cross and rose again from, for, from the dead for your sins? Yeah, I believe that. Stop working. Like, you are unconditionally loved. It's done. It's totally done. There's no good works you have to do, and here's what this means. God's love for you is as high as it could possibly be. It doesn't go up. It doesn't waver with the ups and downs. Can you hurt him? The answer is, moms and dads, Yes. But, but is your relationship in jeopardy? No. So you go to bed every night and you look at this cross and here's what you just say. Thank, thank you for forgiving me. You already have forgiven me. I'm sorry for what I did. Like, let's reconcile. Let's make this thing okay here, right? But objectively, like, I'm okay. And any good mom and dad, you get this. Like when your kids mess up, the relationship isn't, isn't in jeopardy. And if it is, then you're a terrible human being and we need to talk about something else. So, I'm not affiliated with a religion, but a person. And I'm not required to accrue good works to keep God's love or to get God's love. I think Jesus said this, it's just so beautifully, so simply. John 14, 6. Here's what Jesus says. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through a bunch of good works that you tally up in my name and sanctify, right? No, 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 no. That's not what he says. Is the way a person or is the way a good work? It's a person. I, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father. You want heaven, you want to go up there. It comes through a person, not a religion. And you've got to dismantle this. And so here's one of the slippery little ways that this creeps into the most mature believers. You mess up like you do often. And you feel like God is angry at you. And you feel like in that moment, like I gotta make this up. I just gotta make this, I gotta make this right again, right? And here's what I wanna tell you. As soon as you mess up, you are already declared forgiven once and for all with finality. Totally forgiven. There might be some things with other people that you have to do to make some things right if you do some things bad. There might be a moment where like, wow, God is grieved by this and I need to reconcile with God and tell him I'm sorry. But you need to understand this. You do not have to perform for God to keep his love. And when you don't perform, his love isn't wavering and going up and down at all. This little 13-year-old girl, for the first time, understood this, heard this, got this. And it's like a light bulb went off in her brain. But here's the challenge. Culture is going to lie to her for the rest of her life. And it's going to try to make her forget this over and over and over again. I grew up and my mom would always, always, all the time, here's what she would say to me. Now, Michael, you know there's nothing that you could ever do that would make me love you less, right? And I always thought, I was like, of course, mom, I know, right? But now, 
that developed my God concept in profound ways. Now as a man, I can step here and look at you and say, because my mom spoke that truth into my mind and into my soul and into my heart, it is so easy for me to believe now. I can look at you and say, if you want to protect your children and your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews, and you constantly look at them and tell them, I love you no matter what. God's love for you never goes up, and down, up or down based on what you do or what you do not do. It revolutionizes a child. And they will look at you and be like, okay, dad, okay, mom, I get it, right? That's what they do. But every one of your words powerfully goes into their soul. The way is a person, it's not a religion. Number three, I am not in condemnation, but in grace. When you're in Christ, your past is forgiven. There might be residual consequences of your past behavior on a human level, but God will not throw your past in your face. Your present is redeemed and it's waiting for the taking. You have Christ's identity, position, and resources. Act like it. Your future, 100% secure. Nothing is in jeopardy if you're in Christ. Nothing. So I looked at the girl and I read to her this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, say with me, in Christ Jesus. And she says, what's condemnation? <laughs> condemnation is... There will never be a moment when you trust in Jesus where he wags his finger at you and says, shame on you, your disappointment, you'll never be good enough, how could you? What were you thinking? Like this wagging finger of disappointment and anger and judgment. You will never, you will never end up being any good. You will never overcome this. You won't, you won't. You are just negative. And she got that. She understood that very intuitively. And I looked at her and I said, you need to get this idea that in Jesus, there's never going to be condemnation. Will you wound him and grieve him? Yes. Will he discipline you? Dads, please tell me yes. Yes. Good dad's discipline. And this little girl, again, she heard this and her heart just leaped. And again, I just sat there knowing she's going to walk off and for the next 30 or 40 years of her life, culture's going to lie through its teeth to her to try to get her to believe just the opposite. When I mess up, God is not chomping at the bit to punish me. In fact, his patience with me gives me second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And I'm amazed at how slow God is to discipline me. I'm like, I think you'd go quicker because I disciplined my kids on the first act of rebellion and you seem to wait a little longer, but apparently he knows what he's, what he's doing. What you did is not who you are. Who you are is beloved. I love this in uh, Ephesians chapter one. It's in him and Jesus, in him and Christ and Jesus, right? Different ways of saying the same thing. But there's this one part where he refers to Jesus as this, in the beloved. So that when God looks at Jesus, he doesn't just say, you are my son who died on the cross for the sins of the world. He looks at Jesus and he calls him his beloved. And this is great because this is also the phrase that the apostles use to describe the church. Beloved, beloved. Because when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And what God thinks of Jesus, God thinks of Christians. It's beautiful. Who you are before God, it's just difficult to think about. But your transition from in Adam to in Christ changed everything. And we're gonna spend the next two and a half chapters of this book unraveling the magnitude of what it has changed in your life. Some of you are just used to being Christians, and so this is normal. 
And this is why the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is so amazing and we need to be brought back to it. Some of you, you have never, ever heard the scope of what God has done for you in Christ. It's absolutely beautiful. I wanna close and do two things. I wanna read to you a passage from John 17 where really the first real instance of this in language comes from and I want you to hear what Jesus says. He's, he's praying to the Father and he says this, I don't ask for these only, meaning the disciples he's with, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning you. So Jesus is praying for you and me. That they may all be one. Now listen to this. Just as you, Father, are in me. Does that feel weird to anybody else? Like, what does that mean? I mean, I, I read that and I'm like, you're in him. Then he goes on, it gets weirder. And I in you. Well, if you're in him, how can he be in you? Like, I'm thinking spatially. Like, only one person can be. So it's just all getting confusing here. That they also may be in us. So I'm in you. You're in me. They're in us. Okay, this is now getting crazy. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me. And I love this. And loved them even as you loved me. Like one of the benefits of being in Christ is that the exact same passion, love, and affection that God has for his son is given to every adopted son or daughter follower of Jesus Christ. Everyone. And so you're thinking to yourself, like what does God think of me? Well, if beloved is a weird, like, girly, affectionate term, get over it. Because you are beloved means you are loyally, sacrificially, emotionally loved as a dad loves a son or a daughter. And that is what God has for you. Hear me, not in Adam, in Christ. So I want to close with this illustration. And this, for me, um, was an illustration that a good friend of mine, Pastor in Bartlett, um, preached about and he used this. And I remember I saw this and I was like, mind blown. This is Bill. Have you guys been watching Bill up here, by the way? He wasn't paying attention to anything I said. I was really offended. He was looking at you guys the whole time, rolling his eyes. This is Bill. Bill is in Adam. Bill is not smart. Don't be like Bill. (laughs) If you don't know where that came from, There's this thing called the internet. (laughs) And you type into Google, be like Bill, and you will have tons of fun. This clear glass represents Jesus. Bill trusted in Jesus. And Bill is now in Jesus. Mind blown, anybody, anybody? All right, just kidding. You're like, I don't get it, he's in a bottle. When God sees Jesus, who does he see? Us. And when God sees you, who does he see? When Jesus is lifted high, who's exalted? Bill. And when Jesus is humbled, who is humbled? Bill. Every time you look at Jesus, you see Bill. And every time you look at Bill, you see Jesus. And the two are indistinguishable in the same sense. Is Bill Jesus? No. Is Jesus Bill? No. But whenever God sees you, he sees you through the protective lens of Jesus Christ. And what does God feel about Jesus? Love. No condemnation. 
And I saw this and I'm like, you know what, for some of you, like the analogies of Barack Obama and marriage and orphans and even being in Adam and being in Christ, they just don't do it for you, right? For me, I saw this and I just, here's what it's, I see this now in my head all the time. God never looks at me ever, 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 ever once without first seeing Jesus. There's never a moment when God considers me where he does not filter me through the lens of Jesus. And all he sees with Jesus is love. He loves him as a son. This is your position. Bill is in Christ. Bill is smart. Be like Bill. <laughs> you, might, you might just ask the question, how, how do I do this? It's so simple. It's not religion. It is not good works. It's called trust. So when I talked to this girl, I just said to her, do you, do you believe, do you, do you like believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from your, for your sins and rose again from the dead? And she said, I believe that. I'm like, do you, do you trust in Jesus? She said, I do. And intuitively, this girl knew what it meant to trust. I said, you're in Christ. And there's no condemnation if you're in Jesus. Now, I didn't have to explain all this. She just kind of understood it intuitively. And this is what I love about being a follower of Jesus. It's so easy. It is. Is it hard to obey Jesus? Yes, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> is it easy to be in Christ? Yeah, because he did all the hard work for us. And so if there's some of you here in this room, I just want to look at you and say, stop working. Because if you do half the work and Jesus does half the work, nobody gets anything. The only way to be in Christ is to stop working and to trust in Jesus. And I want to tell you that if you trust in Jesus, his identity, beloved son or daughter, is transferred to you. His position as exalted is yours. His resources, which are infinite, are yours. I don't know about you. I'd rather be in Christ than being in Adam any day. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, there was a day when all of us were in Adam, and I want to just come before you right now and say, um, truly, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for predestining us, for adopting us, plucking us out of our orphan state, bringing us into your home, receiving your identity, your position, your inheritance. Jesus is our brother and our savior. I'm just so personally grateful for this. And so God, um, I know that there are some in this room, they've just never considered it like this. They've been in religion, they've been in Adam, they've been working and fighting and trying to accrue good works. And my, my just simple desire is that the beauty and simplicity and clarity of the good news of Jesus, that it's by faith and not by works, would just obliterate all of their wrong ideas. And that you would put it together so it's so simple. And God, for those of us who um, have just such a hard time believing that you love us and when you see us, you see Jesus, God, I pray that you would sink deep into our souls this truth that we are beloved because we're in Christ and that everything that is his is ours. And so God, for those of us who are in Christ, would you continually, as we study the book of, of Ephesians, would you teach us what it means to be who we are? And so Father, we love you and as we celebrate communion now, our desire is to lift high the name of Jesus. And we pray all this and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.